Buenos dias, amigos. This is Doshi, the gnarly beach cleaner, calling in from Venice Beach, California. I wanted to let you know about California Assembly Bill 319, which would require that all single-use plastic bottles sold in California to have the cap connected to the bottle. Are you sick of seeing those pesky bottle caps in the environment and on your beaches? If so, call your legislator and ask them to support Assembly Bill 319 to connect the cap. The power is in the people and the politics that we address. Stay stoked, amigos. What's up, everybody? That was a message from one of our listeners. I'm going to put a link below this episode um, to a place where you can get involved. I just clicked the link. I called my representative. It took about four minutes. So if you're listening to this from California, I encourage you to do the same because this is an issue, especially as, as surfers, that is staring us in the face right now. Um, and this is a step in the right direction. So click the link, get involved. And if you have a message for me, whether it's a beach cleanup or you're just uh, tuning in and want to say hi and um, tell me something you're excited about, um, use the voice memos app on your phone, record something uh, that's under 20 seconds, bonus points if it's funny, and email it to me. My email is kyle at kyle.surf, and maybe I'll play it at the beginning of my show. I'm feeling grateful right now. I'm feeling so grateful for all of you. Seriously, I know that I say, like, thanks for listening to the show. Thanks for donating to the show. But this week especially, man, I've just been getting such nice comments and feedback on the show. Um, because, you know, it's 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 strange that people listen to this show because it's pretty weird, right? We talk about psychedelics and sex and surfing and... Um, all these subjects that fascinate me. And the fact that I have so many of you listening actually gives me a little bit more faith in humanity because it means that there's enough people out there that are interested in the same weird shit as I am. Um, I like that. So big thank you, especially this week to Aaron Palmer and Evan Slater for donating on Patreon. High five to both of you guys. Uh, it's people like you who keep this show going. And if any of you like this show and feel inspired to donate five bucks, 10 bucks, 20 bucks, whatever you can, head over to my website, kyle.surf, and make the donation. Yeah, but um, one more thank you. I, it's been about a year since I've been doing this, since I started this podcast, and I was reflecting on it and just thinking about all the cool people who I've had a chance to meet. Um, yeah, a year ago, I didn't know Chris Ryan, and we I've been on his podcast a couple times. He's been on mine, and last you know a couple of weeks ago, we went down to Baja together on a writing retreat, and he's turned into kind of a mentor of sorts for me. I, I've never really had a, a mentor, but uh, it's weird to call him that. But he he consistently forces me to think more deeply about subjects and about the world. Um, and he consistently sends me articles that challenge my views. And that never would have happened um, if I didn't start a podcast. So I have no plans of slowing down anytime soon. And if anything, we're just going to keep picking up the cadence and quality of this show. So I'm going to stop talking, but I will introduce my guest right now, who is a fascinating fucking character. Um, Marcus Erickson received his PhD in science education from the University of Southern California in 2003, months before embarking on a 2,000-mile, five-month journey down the Mississippi River on a homemade raft of plastic bottles to bring attention to the issue. Again, in 2008, he rafted across the Pacific Ocean from California to Hawaii on junk, floating on 15,000 plastic bottles and a Cessna airplane fuselage as a cabin. Marcus, you are a gangster, my friend. The journey took Two th it was 2,600 miles in 88 days. Uh, he did it to bring attention to the work of the Five Gyres Institute, the organization he co-founded with his wife, Anna Cummings. 
In 2013, he and his colleagues published the discovery of microbeads in the Great Lakes, which became the cornerstone for a U.S.-based campaign to eliminate plastic microbeads from cosmetics, resulting in the Microbead-Free Water Waters Act, which became U.S. federal law in 2015. Marcus uh, also digs up dinosaur bones, so we ended up talking about paleontology for... Uh, paleontology paleontology uh for the first bit of this podcast and then we started talking more about plastic um we were recording in a converted garage and there was some construction going on in the back um and we just didn't have enough time um honestly for this podcast because i mean in addition to all this marcus served in the gulf war um he's He's so well-spoken, so interesting, and the breadth and depth of knowledge that he has, um, it was really impressive. So I'm going to do my best to get him back on the podcast for a round two. So once again, to all of you, thank you so much for listening to this show, and I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Marcus Erickson. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. I've collected. You have ten thousand pounds of dinosaur bones that you've collected. Yeah, yeah, eight eight partial triceratops skeletons. Uh, one beautiful duckbill dinosaur. Uh, it's preserved from the hip down. Are you recording? Yeah, yeah, we're good. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I've got about ten thousand pounds of of Lake Cretaceous dinosaur bones. Um, Lake, Cretace- Lake Cretaceous. Lake Cretaceous. So right when the dinosaur extinction happened, the big asteroid impact. So the evidence of that is you can find in Wyoming in this beautiful hundred thousand uh, square mile territory in the eastern part of the state is all Lake Cretaceous. So you find Triceratops, T Rex, all the dinosaurs you saw in kids' books that were killed by this asteroid impact, the very end of their time on Earth is preserved there. So I go there for the last 20 years. In fact, before I was doing ocean science, I was on this career track to be a vertebrate paleontologist. Really? To study fossils. Yeah. So, but I still, I can't shake that desire to collect and that interest in natural history. So I still go collect dinosaur bones. In fact, this summer we're going back to Wyoming to dig up our eighth triceratops skeleton, partial skeleton, uh, we were actually dragging last summer a 900-pound block of rock with uh, the fused vertebrae of the hip, the sacrum of a triceratops, down the hill into the back of a car, went to a preparation lab. And is there uh, is Wyoming the central area to get a lot of good dinosaur bones? You say that you go back there most years? Uh, that's my field site on a couple of private ranches where I dig. But, I mean, across the United States, across the U.S., Canada has huge uh, fossil beds. So in Baja, California, there's one T-Rex relative really? that lives only in Baja. Wow. So uh, when, I, when I say lives there, means the surface rocks are the right age at the right time and are exposed on the surface. So you can see the rocks. So in Baja, there is that one T-Rex relative down south. So, I mean, the, the point is every country worldwide has this rich natural history on the ground if you look and you know what you're looking for. So how do you know what you're looking for? What are some of the characteristics that make you think, ooh, this could be a good dig? Well, I'm looking for uh, terrestrial sediments. Um, for, for me, I'm interested in, in, the, in the land-based uh, fossils, the big skeletons that roam the earth, the big T-Rex, Triceratops, the big, the big dinosaurs. So I'm looking for you know, evidence of terrestrial river kind of sediments. I'm looking for, for leaves and mudstones and sandstones. All that tells us it was, it was a near coastal swamp, wetlands. And in that is where I find the dinosaurs I'm interested in. And for me, it's just it's so much fun. I go to Wyoming and I'm middle of nowhere, like a 7,000 acre ranch. There's nobody there. The rancher keeps his lights off at night. So it's just pitch black, beautiful big sky above. 
And there's this this modern ecosystem of coyotes and owls and bobcats. I've seen I've been tracked by one mountain lion out there by myself scouting around. It's an amazing ecosystem. And then I've got this other ecosystem beneath my feet that's buried, where I'm finding, you know, leaves from from uh, palm palm fronds, and I'm finding pine cones from meta sequoia that match the sequoia pine cones we find in Sequoia National Park. I find uh, turtles and alligators and those snake bones and frog bones and all that beneath the feet of of duckbill dinosaurs, ankylosaurs, pachycephalosaurs, tyrannosaurus rex, and triceratops. So it's a cool place to be. I can really check out of of my contemporary urban life here in Los Angeles and walk into a whole different world. I would imagine also that every skeleton you find, every... um you know, every sequoia uh, pine cone that you find, it paints a little bit more of that world for you that then you get to live in while you're on the dig. Oh, sure. Exactly. Exactly. So you're, you're digging through this, this time and you're uncovering little bits of, of history. What I enjoy is the things that you don't see as fossils to sort of interpret. Um, what do you mean by that? Well, so, so we have no idea what color they were, what the... Uh, how with a muscle mass, their speed, what they sound and smells, and all those the sights—they're all, they're all gone. All we have is just bones. So I, I enjoy looking at a fossil and trying to reconstruct the missing parts. And one good good example I'll share with you—I just did this. Um, I had a triceratops skull, and I had the middle part of the skull that housed the brain. So I took that bone and I borrowed a rock saw, a big giant uh, rock slicer. And it cut a thin slice in the middle of this brain case, the bone that held the brain. It opened up. I took all the dirt out. I closed it back up again, and I poured liquid rubber on the inside. And then when, when that hardened, I then pulled this rubber thing out of the brain case, and what I had was this. And I'll show you. This is the rubber brain of a triceratops. Whoa. All right. So what we're looking at, all right, so it, there's a rubber feeling... Uh, I guess it's a reptile brain. This is a, uh, it's a dinosaur. Very dinosaur. different from reptiles. Sorry. Okay. Reptilian Rept- basic design of the brain. It has the okay. same 12 cranial nerves that you and I have. That basic design has been consistent for over 300 million years. So this is the size also of a of the brain of the dinosaur? So this is a, not, uh, a six-ton dinosaur, Triceratops, yeah. three-horned dinosaur. Right. Their brain was, what you're holding here, as big as a soda can, tiny. With the same, look on the underside, you can see the 12 cranial nerves. Here on the very tip, this thing pointing out is goes to the nose. That's olfactory sense. Beneath that are two other nerves. And these nerves look like little sausages sticking out. Those are the optic nerves, go to the eyes. This is a pituitary body. It's the same 12 nerves that you and I have. And see, this fascinates me, that I can take a bone, I can pour liquid rubber in it, and I can reconstruct its brain, and then hold it and show, show people. Science is so cool, man. I love it. And I've had I've had four of them bronzed. So there's the bronze brain. I have this idea. All right, so we're, a- now we're looking at this the same one, but it weighs about ten times as much. Oh, that's so cool. Wow, man. So that's why I can't stop digging dinosaurs. Even though I go in the oceans and do the expeditions, I gotta come back and have time on land and sea. Okay, so what's the process uh, of, you know, so you, you dig up a triceratops skull to that ending up in the museum? Because I would imagine that it's a very meticulous process to get it from the ground into a museum where most of the public sees it. So for every one hour of time you spend out in the field digging up dinosaurs, which is the fun part, it's another 10 hours, 10 to 1 time you spend in a laboratory with little tiny tools, little tiny little rock hammers and, and, and little needles, little vibrating needles to shed away the rock from the bone surface. And then you're applying a super glue drop by drop on the bone. It takes forever in a lab. So if you look at a skeleton that's in the museum, you can think there have got to be 10,000 hours of meticulous work to get those bones where they are. And then structural engineers come in, have to mount these skeletons, and, I mean, you've got these these precious items that are sitting 20 feet up in the air on these metal mounts. So it's it's a pretty uh, arduous process to get a bone from the ground into a, a museum. The goal that, that I have with my wife, Anna Cummins, we both founded Five Gyres doing the ocean work. When we first met uh, 10 years ago, our first date was in a restaurant, a fancy restaurant with a paper tablecloth and crayons. 
and we just drew our future science center. And she was drawing rooftop gardens. I was drawing herds of dinosaurs walking through the museum. We had our oceanography exhibit about how to not let trash pollute our oceans. Had all these little themes going on in this little science center. And we then went into the ocean plastics theme head on. And that's kind of occupied us for the last almost nine, ten years, our entire time together. Now we're coming back to the idea of a science center in Los Angeles, but less, less a traditional science center, more of a sustainability think tank where we're thinking, okay, with all the challenges in the world today, where do we want our big cities to be? The whole world's becoming much more urbanized, becoming much more populated, much more resource scarcity, much more polluted. So how can we make cities to be, instead of centers of, of pollution and disruption and chaos, to make them um, centers of sustainable development. And from there, they can, they can sort of push out into the world more sustainable kind of thinking. Right. That seems to be uh, a, a much more realistic way to create solutions. It seems that there's a couple different ways that people are looking at the future. One is, all right, I'm just going to get out of Dodge and go have my little yurt a hundred miles away from everyone else. Or, you know, I'm going to live in this small communal, um, permaculture living area way outside of the big cities, which is one way to go. Absolutely. But then there still are the big cities, which is what it is that you're tackling. And you can have a much more, uh, you can have much greater impact Volume-wise, if you um, re-green the cities, yes, exactly. So I think re-greening our our cities, making them more sustainable. Where in the city you've got your waste managed right. in a circular economy, you've got your energy, your transportation dialed in, so it's renewable. You've got your food and water security. Like here in Los Angeles, we let so much water leave the LA River, right, and then we pump in water from the valley or from from Colorado River. It's, it's, an, it's an insane use of water. So to build in food and water security, ecology, to create ecological corridors, to, to actually green the space, take all the urban space and make it green, make it produce food, make it produce a, a green reflective surface in, so, it, so that it becomes a place for flyovers for birds, insects to come in and propagate. And then community, building strong communities where your identity is around sustainability. So I think when cities... And, and this is happening slowly. When cities do that, then I think they become generators of, of shared knowledge. Right. That becomes scalable around the world. And that's what we're seeing in the near future. For five gyres at least, we're going to see this whole waste in the oceans issue become more about urban zero waste. Stop the flow of trash from land to sea. And that, makes, that means making our cities more resilient in all these themes I mentioned. So what are some bright spots that you're looking to right now? What are examples that you're seeing um, that are inspiring you? Some of the bright uh, things I see on the horizon. Yeah. So the United Nations has these sustainable development goals. Uh, Mayor Garcetti here in Los Angeles has his own sustainability goals, very much aligned to the SDG goals of the UN. You have groups like the Post Carbon Institute that are really thinking about urban resilience and all these different themes. So we're seeing lots of action happening. For example, here in Los Angeles, the city was the, had just put in the first big order for electric buses, um, public transit. Okay. So I think we're seeing this shift is happening. There are so many organizations here in this city that are, for example, turning empty lots into food lots. They're trying to get people to, to do more solar. Uh, you're seeing more and more solar. We're actually we're having someone come to our house to give us a quote on solar pretty soon. There's a lot of sun in the city. Yeah, exactly. There's no reason why we shouldn't be making all our own power. Yeah. We have the real estate to do it. Yes. You know, we're more sprawled out horizontally than vertically, so we have enough this horizontal service area facing the sun. We can make our own power. We can make our own food. Like uh, Anne in our backyard, we, we got all the salvaged wood from a, from a construction site that was being bulldozed. We made raised beds, and we just produce a lot of, a, a lot of greens. Right. Um, Go for it. Here. So uh, I think we're seeing the change happening. But what I do notice is that here in L.A., there are, there are 10 million people. There are a lot of people that these changes are happening independent of their awareness or ability to participate. 
So what Anne and I have thought of is that a sustainability center that's really sort of uh, focused on, on the general public, saying here's what's happening in your neighborhood, in the future of Los Angeles, and here's how you can participate, how you can find the subsidies to put sold on your house now, how you can really grow food. Here are some of the technologies on how to, to capture energy in a very efficient, proficient way. Here are the ways to grow vertical gardens on, on your walls. There's all this cool stuff happening, um, but the general public isn't always aware or knows how to start. Yes, yeah, the, the goals seem too audacious to find any point of entry. But if you can get people involved in one, then much like um, I found that a lot of people who are are looking at um, new systems in, you know, let's say plastic pollution or food waste, they see uh, all of the inefficiencies in other systems as well. It's almost like when as soon as you leave the matrix, all of a sudden you see the issues in all these other sectors, even if they may not be your sectors. But as soon as you're engaged, like I really like the idea of of having the science center. All of a sudden, it, it wakes people up, and all and they can um, find that point of entry, and then move from there along other issues. You know what I mean? Once you drop the veil, you then see uh, all the inefficiencies around you. Yeah, like you've said, and I'm just inspired to see all the people that are actually doing doing stuff. Yeah, and and the. The stuff we want to do, again, is just engaging people. So back to digging dinosaurs, the whole purpose of that now is an extinctions expedition to understand, you know, we're in the middle of the, well, the beginning of the sixth extinction. There have been five major extinctions on this planet. Dinosaurs disappearing was the fifth one where 70% of the species disappeared, gone forever. So we're in the beginning of one now caused by some of the changes that our species have, have, have created on this planet, making things less hospitable for a lot of life. So how to undo that and bring uh, somewhat of an ecosystem balance back to our cities is sort of why we're, we continue digging fossils. I would love to bring just hordes of kids, students from inner city LA out to Wyoming, dig up fossils, learn about extinctions, and then go home and build these ecological corridors where they can say, okay, in our space here in Los Angeles, for example, when, when I first came to LA, I ran the Traveling Insect Zoo for the Museum of Natural History. I was bringing eight different live animals to inner city schools in LA. And I did, did my whole song and dance about insects and bugs, and kids went nuts seeing a tarantula walking across my, my head and, and walking sticks on my shirt. But then... At the same time, there was one little butterfly called the Palos Verdes Blue that lived near the LAX airport. It was going extinct. And we were doing nothing about it. And I thought, okay, here's this big institution that's not really addressing the local issues of, of, of ecosystem services and, and animals are becoming endangered or extinct. Not addressing those directly. More just talking about, about animals. So I think a, a science center that... That, that takes students out to learn these big lessons in the context of digging fossils, then come back and say, let's not let animals in Southern California become fossils. Let's deal with these, these issues here. It's kind of what we're after. Whew, man, you are one on-track dude. I would imagine also that by studying other um, time periods, it allows you to look at your own time period through a more sober lens. I think a big issue that a lot of people have is that just because it hasn't happened to them doesn't mean it's possible. Like, or like just because in our time period there hasn't been, um, you know, or in my lifetime there hasn't been a war on U.S. soil, that doesn't mean that it's not possible. Just because we, I haven't been a part of one of the great extinctions, that doesn't mean it's not possible. But by you uh, actually studying other time periods, it allows you to look at this one um, in a way that most, in, through a perspective that most people don't get to have. Yeah, and I think bringing kids out to do that, I mean, there's nothing more enjoyable, at least for me, and, I, and, I, and I've witnessed this in a lot of young folks I've brought to Wyoming, is to dig in the ground and, and see a T-Rex tooth pop out. Actually, I can show you one right now. I've got one right down Hell here. Hell yeah. All right, this is the Trevor Tro uh, Treasure Trove box. Yeah, this is my, this is so cool. my box of eclectic things. All Here's right. an Iraqi tank helmet. We'll mention, I'll just grab that later. Yeah. Oh, man. 
Here's my box of goodies from this last summer. Okay. Things that I found. All right. So we're looking at uh, almost looks like a little fishing box pull, yeah. full of uh, a little tackle dinosaur box. bugs. And there's a little small nano tyrannus tooth so that popped out of the ground. And the person that dug it up, I watched her eyes just light up. Wow. It, and that had not seen the light of it's day so smooth. Yeah, for 65 looks... million years. And look, it has the same serrations like, like great whites have. Yeah, yeah, there's these the, yeah, the serrations right on the top of this. This thing would munch you, man. Yeah, kind of convergent evolution there. We have yeah. different animals, totally unrelated, with the same strategy of serrated teeth to slice through their prey. Here's a velociraptor's front claw. If you ever saw Jurassic Park and watched the, the one velociraptor tapping its claw... That's the that's my first claw I have found in in twenty years. Oh my god! Super cool. That is so cool. Um, in this box, I see a bunch of marine plastic here in a small jar full of liquid that says thirty one fifteen north, one fifty five twenty two east. And that's just off the coast of Japan, collected fifteen months after the two thousand eleven tsunami. So that was our expedition, trying to understand the subsurface debris field. So that when the tsunami hit, I mean, all this debris came offshore, and whatever had a wind profile, like a buoy, a chunk of styrofoam, even a boat or, or shipping containers, went across the ocean pretty quick. Went right across between 35 and 45 degrees north, and it was washing up on shore in British Columbia. Uh, and Alaska, the Bering Strait, you had lots of debris, even as far south as Oregon. And you saw like fishing docks. Even one shipping container had our Harley Davidson inside. Holy shit. That was one story. Yeah, so a lot of stuff went across. And they found the owner. And now that, that motorcycle's in the Harley Davidson Museum somewhere. What? <laughs> like, hey, man, we found your, your motorcycle out to sea. Exactly. The first bike to float across, across the ocean. But the subsurface debris, so things that were below the, the waves, still floating, but below the waves. These are small items. These were uh, shoes, buckets, crates, toothbrushes, things that didn't have a high profile above the sea, um, were still only like a thousand miles offshore a year and a half later. So we were working with ocean modelers and um, uh, the, the Japanese government. We let them know what we wanted to do. And they said, yes, thank communication. With um, uh, with them, photograph, document everything, anything that seemed that it had some personal connection, document it, bring it back, and and let them try and find the owner. And was this with the Five Gyres? Yes, this is the Five Gyres. This is the Five Gyres Institute. Our expedition that was back in 2012, and uh, we actually did find a fishing boat. It's actually outside my garage right here. I saw that. Yeah, and and the the the, the China. The, Excuse me. The Japanese character is that says bright open door. And they tried to find the owner. All they had was that, and, and we couldn't. But uh, we also saw lots of buckets go by. We saw lots of shoes. I was amazed how many shoes and flip-flops were still there. So the, the subsurface debris field, the big blob of debris, was only 1,000 miles offshore. We sailed right through it, and that's one. This one jar, all this debris you see, all these small fragments... Some is from the Japan tsunami. Some is just, you know, background debris of what's out there constantly accumulating more and more. And you can see this is half of it is zooplankton, little bits of jellyfish and small larval fish. And the majority of the volume is plastic, little plastic bits. Oh, man. And that's dragging a net maybe two miles across the surface, a net that's you know, as wide as one of your arms and maybe 10 inches deep. A small oh. little net. Okay. So when, miles you drag it. And is that what you're uh, using m on most expeditions when you're going out on one of these five gyres expeditions? You yes. go out on a boat, like just paint that picture for me what this, this looks like. So five gyres, we began trying to answer the question, how much trash is in the world's oceans? And we... Ended up going out to each of the five subtropical gyres, North Pacific gyre, the South Pacific, North Atlantic, South Atlantic, Indian Ocean. And each of those dragging the same net, a little box 
60 centimeters by maybe 20 centimeters across the surface for two to three miles at a time. Then you count the particles. You separate them by sizes. Everything as big as a grain of rice is microplastic. Bigger is macroplastic. And then with those numbers, uh, the weights, you then get a picture of how much plastic there is per unit area, per square kilometer. Particle counts and weights per square kilometer. We did this thousands of times around the world. Then in 2014, we produced the first global estimate of all plastics, all sizes, in all oceans. And that came to uh, a quarter, 269,000 metric tons of trash, a quarter million tons of trash from 5.25 trillion particles. That was our global estimate of what's floating. And that's an example of it right there. And here's another example of a little laundry bottle. You can see it's all fish bitten on the edges. We found tons of buckets and crates. We have found shoes, paintbrushes, toothbrushes, combs, uh, lots of bottle caps, fragments of straws, tiny fragments of plastic bags, little tiny flecks of film because the bag itself, they don't survive that long. And what's interesting is all that trash is less than 1% of one year's production of plastics. So in the world today, the plastic industry makes over 300 million tons of new plastic every year. What we found floating was less than 1% of one year's production. And when that told us, we learned a few things from this global study, trying to understand how we're trashing our planet. So the ocean surface is not the final resting place for trash. What leaves our rivers goes out to sea. Much of it gets blown back on beaches. And you've seen trash beaches. Kyle, you've been around the world. You've seen this. Yeah. I mean, that's why I care about this issue is because I, I see it. And I think that um, I, I don't mean to, to cut you off on here, but it, it is one of those issues where once you see it, you see it everywhere. But if you don't see it, it's out of sight, out of mind. And it. what I glean is that your goal is and your struggle is communicating this issue. Like, how do you actually get people to how do you make it sink in for people that this is a global epidemic what's the ultimate case of out of sight out of mind i mean who is there in the middle of the ocean who is halfway between you know tokyo and and honolulu or you know bermuda and and the coast of the uk or spain middle of nowhere is where we find our trash is is floating and this bottle i just showed you there are fish bites all around the edges who is there to see to witness the fact that our trash is being nibbled by billions of organisms you know when i first began this issue 10 years ago i used to reference this one meta-analysis that said okay there are 267 species eating our trash that was 10 years ago now it's over 1200 documented cases. It's safe to say the entire planet ecosystem is interacting with our plastic garbage. How do you communicate that? You've got to get people out there. Our expeditions are doing that. And we're taking thought leaders. We're taking people that run companies, CEOs, politicians, artists, educators, other scientists to come see it for themselves. But now we're finding the the best, the best Mitigation to engage people is far, far on land where the trash is starting. I think people now know the ocean plastic issue exists, but knowing that it's many of our bigger cities, our coastal communities in developing countries that haven't got much of an infrastructure for waste management, they're the biggest polluters. So going there and working with them to help them solve the solutions on their term it's kind of, kind of where the movement is in this issue. I want to tell one quick story where it's, it's a land-based issue. I went to Dubai, and I was there in Dubai, Qatar, Oman, and going back to Kuwait City, which I hadn't been to in 25 years since the Gulf War. I went to those countries, but I was looking at the Gulf of Arabia, that huge span of water looking for microplastics there. And I met a guy, a veterinarian in Dubai. Interesting guy. He, he knows Sheikh Mohammed very well, one of the richest people on the planet. And the sheikh told him, I want the best camel hospital on the planet because his veterinarian studies camels. So he gave this guy, Uli Werner, $50 million to build this amazing hospital for, for just camels. And, and, he, and Uli Werner, he tells me, he says, you want to see plastics? Come with me. So we go into the desert in his car, 60 miles inland, way far from, any, from the water. And we're going over these beautiful red sandy sand dunes acacia trees here and there. I haven't seen that in so nostalgic for me because I was there fighting in the Gulf War 25 years ago. And now we're here on a whole different mission. 
you get to the top of one ridge. We look over the edge and there are piles of white bones here and there. So we walk down to one and he pulls a rib out of the sand. It's a big, it's a camel rib. It's about almost a foot and a half long, but it's as big as my forearm. And he says, here, take this. And then he grabs one and he says, start digging. So we're using this rib from a camel to dig in that camel's skeleton, digging in its, in its chest, uncovering the basket of ribs of its chest cavity in the middle of its chest. We pull out this 20 pound round mass of plastic bags, all calcified. The camel had been eating plastic bags his entire life, died in the desert, and all that was left were bones and trash in plastic bags. And he sees this over and over and over again. And he told me, these plastic bags are killing this land species. They're eating it. They don't digest it. It blocks their stomach. There are so many plastic bags, they're, 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 their gut is full, and they feel like they're full when they're not. So they, they get malnourished. They dehydrate. And it's so toxic, there's all kinds of bacteria living in these bags. It becomes a septic environment. They get sick. So he says, we have a significant impact of trash on this land species across this desert. And that made me think, okay, this really is a global epidemic. We got to look at the oceans, of course, but look at everything, the entire global ecosystem and how our, our behavior, our systems are impacting all life, including ourselves. So what are uh, steps that big cities are taking right now to mitigate this issue? You said that a lot of the um, the worst problems are in these big cities. They're in certain developing countries. What are you seeing happening right now that needs to um, move more quickly? I think having cities transforming how we look at waste. So it, the whole movement is called the zero waste movement. And this is where change is going to happen globally. It's a scalable way of looking at trash. In the past, and I remember how trash was managed where I grew up in Louisiana. Someone comes to your curbside, they they take the trash can, dump it in a big, big truck, and that goes to a central place where it's either buried or it's burned. When I was a kid, we used to go dump. I remember dumping a, a green patent leather sofa at the local dump and watching a big claw grab our sofa and these big giant doors open and they dumped this giant inferno, this big incinerator, big clouds of black smoke. That was the, the, the mid-70s in Louisiana. Those days have changed. They're, they're not quite the same. But it's still that centralized waste collection and then manage it out of sight, out of mind for most of the public. But what that does, it, to a large degree, it, it, it makes the issue... It takes responsibility away from you to have to deal with your waste. Someone else does it for you. And it doesn't help you to regulate the kinds of trash you're making. Um, what we're seeing, the flip side, what we're seeing happening in some countries is this decentralized model where like a small village in Indonesia, they were seeing what they're doing is they're taking their trash and they're going door to door and, t and educating people on, okay, here's your plastics, sort them out first. Don't co-mingle all your stuff. We're not going to centralize a collection and go to one place. It's got to get separated here. So we'll recycle what we can. Organics will separate, and those go to a, to a local composting facility. And the rest of the stuff, we have to figure out, do we really need these things, these disposable diapers, these earbuds are totally unrecyclable, These all these different things that don't have a place in a biological system or a recycling system. That's happening. The decentralized waste management, it's called zero waste. Cities are, are beginning to transform themselves and think in terms of zero waste. I was in Manhattan just a few weeks ago, and Brooklyn now has these small little brown bins, like a little small little brown garbage can um, that you put your food scraps in. That's new. Manhattan now is getting that. Just when I was there a few weeks ago, they're just starting a new program for door-to-door food waste collection. They're separating biological waste from the more technical plastics and metals and things. That is a decentralized model of waste management. And it counters the centralized system that many cities have of just have it all go to one place, one dump, one incinerator, and burn or bury it. That model has to shift. Across issues, it seems like two themes that 
are leading the charge, um, or, or two words that are are very much um, applicable. Um, whether it is that you're looking, whether you're looking at um, the, uh, the solutions to the, the financial crisis or plastic pollution, waste management, are the one word is decentralization, and the other is transparency. And if you can decentralize the systems, and if you can create transparency, if you can have the onus come back to you, the consumer, and the responsibility come back to you, the consumer, that is what creates the shift. And you can you can look at that across across sectors, whether it's the financial institutions or um, even working conditions. You know, people want to know where their where their uh, clothes come from too. You know, and, and the transparency. Uh, that that results in that can, I think, really help. So I would agree 100% that decentralizing everything is the direction the world is going. I think you need that. I, I often say globalize ideas, not stuff. And when you can take ownership in your community of everything, and I think our our technologies now are allowing for more and more of that. The whole local organic movement is very much aligned with the decentralized waste management. Um Making your own power. There's enough technology where you can, you know, make your own power on site to fulfill your needs, your modern needs for energy. Same for for food production. There are community gardens that are actually producing a lot of food for small communities, and making those transparent. Transparent for the sake of of scaling, sharing and scaling those technologies. I think, uh, yeah, decentralizing everything is is where it's at. I mean, if you think of how our, our society, civilization evolved into these globalized, centralized models that don't really work anymore. They're very exploitive of people and the planet. And now shifting to a more decentralized system where each city, each individual, each neighborhood takes control or they take responsibility for how materials, how energy, how water, how food, how other, other life, other ecosystems flow through them. That's uh, the way of the future. Yeah. Well, it's the way that, that nature operates because it's less brittle. Nature doesn't tend to monocrop, right? There's, there's polyculture in nature. If one crop isn't doing well, another one will succeed. And it's constantly trying out these new adaptive systems and figuring out what's going to work best. And if we, mo- I think that's a way that humans can model the intelligence of nature to further thrive. You know, but there is this this system that has that does exist, a centralized right. model that, that we have to, to change. And, and it is reluctant to do so. It is powerful. It is rich. It is influential. Um, it can be aggressive. I can tell you in the whole world of plastics, which I know, I know very well, looking at the, the, the way the plastics industry has enjoyed this high profit growth curve in the last 50 years, a 4% growth curve. Every year, they're making more and more plastics. They just crossed the 300 million metric ton per year production a few years ago in 2013. They anticipate making 600 million tons of new plastic by 2030, making between 1 and 1.2 billion tons of new plastic each year by 2050. Ah! Sorry, That's a are, lot of stuff. Are you talking about the American Chemistry Council and this is organiz- organizations like that? Okay, the global. This is the global. ACC. This is Plastics Europe. This is CIPLA. This is other organizations globally that are making plastics. Together, their global production estimates are these numbers I gave you. But the only way they can sustain that, that growth curve, is to get rid of last year's plastic. So if you have, if recycling gets really good. If you're recycling, you know, 100 million tons of plastic, where's the need to make another 100 million tons the following year? They got to destroy it. And that's why the industry is pushing incineration so in so intensively. Are they? What do they do to push that? They are pushing for for example, right now Southeast Asia is ground zero for this conversation, where Southeast Asia is through research has been shown to be where much of the leakage of trash from land to sea occurs. Like the waters around Indonesia and, and, and the Philippines are, are really trashed. If you go surf there, you'll see that the whole, that famous photo of the trash wave oh, yeah. is in Indonesia. So you're seeing industry going there and saying, oh, what you need are incinerators. 
You need these energy recovery systems to make power from your trash. But don't regulate plastics. Don't stop making and using plastic. Just collect it better. Take World Bank loans and collect it better. Build your infrastructure and then burn it. Make power. And you've got the flip side. And this is where it goes back to that, that, that change in the whole system. The other way of managing waste is actually let's get really good at recycling. Let's divert our organics to, for compost, for, for municipal-sized composting. And, and the residual that we can't recycle, let's figure out how to deal with this, how to move those things into a circular economy. So you've got the recyclables, the compostables, and the residuals. So if you can get that system cranking, then you, you don't need to burn. You don't have enough volume to justify spending millions on an incinerator. What is the problem with burning plastics and making power from it? The problem is the pollution that comes from it. It's, it's, it's the system that exploits uh, people and the planet. It's dirty. Uh, despite there are differences between pyrolysis, gasification, and open uh, uh, open pit incineration, they're very different, but they're all polluting. They're all very expensive, much more expensive than creating decentralized uh, systems of composting, recycling, and, and so forth. So it's expensive. It's polluting. Whose backyard are you going to put it in? And it's not a a, a long term solution. If you can really get good at, at these other things, recycling, composting, and, and waste aversion, then you don't need to spend all that money. It's a better system, but I'll tell you, it's bad for plastics, for the plastics industry. They need to get rid of last year's plastics. They will fight regulation of plastic bag bans. They'll fight regulations of straw bans. Anything that sort of decreases the amount of plastic made, they, they fight. And at the same time, they, they want to push for, for big loans to build infrastructure to burn plastic. If you burn last year's plastic, don't recycle it, get rid of it, then you create markets, a market demand for the new stuff. They need to get rid of it. We call it the, the essence of planned obsolescence. And planned obsolescence is very much a, a modern business tool where you design uh, things not to last. You design things to break. You design things so that they become unfashionable or unfunctional to, to increase market demand for new stuff. That's been the model for the last 50 years. And Plastics has grabbed that and says incineration is our, our planned obsolescence. Get rid of last year's plastic to keep demand for new stuff. How do you see uh, the plastics industry fighting initiatives like plastic bag bans. And I know that you've been at the forefront also of the microbead uh, ban that I want to ask you about at some point as well. But like, what? how do they actually engage in those fights? Well, what they'll do historically, they come in at the 11th hour. So after you have a year-long plastic bag campaign going on, like in Seattle, for example, we had colleagues there for a year. They, they raised like $60,000, $65,000 and they fought this long, long campaign to ban plastic bags. Industry came in within three weeks of the vote. They spent like $1.4 million with bus ads, big billboards, radio spots, TV commercials to say, this plastic bag ban's gonna raise taxes, kill jobs. That's all they had to say, complete bull. But just by saying those things, they were able to convince the people that, that a bag ban might not be the best thing, so it failed. It eventually passed. A couple of years later, they passed the bag ban, but that's industry strategy. Throw money at at a a campaign that undermines the work of the of the progressive organizations who are pushing for bag bans. That's happened across the country. It still happens today. That's one stat strategy. The other one is called preemption, and that's kind of where the focus of the plastics industry is now is to is to go from state to state and. And push for legislation that puts a ban on bans. So that it's a state-level policy that says each city in our state, you cannot ban products. You cannot ban bags or straws or foam polystyrene or, or plastic utensils. It's a ban on bans. And it, what it does, it has effectively in some states killed the grassroots initiatives to, to ban bags. So wait, that's where what? Fight is now. Like, whoa, 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 wait. How does that happen? How can you put a ban on a ban? Because the argument that 
there is a uh, product in our um, economy that is being externalized and is killing animals and it's ha- it's having um, health ef- effects on people when it's burned. We have banned, for example, lead in the past because the environmental impacts of it were so great. Um, how is it that an industry can put a ban on a product even though the environmental consequences are are so massive? Like what a ban well, on bans? Explain that more. Sure. So, so again, a ban on ban is simply it's state level legislation that that simply puts the 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 process of banning a product in the hands of the state and not and not cities. What the industry has recognized is that across the state, you know, in California, for example, that the way we got plastic bags banned here was city by city initiatives until you had over 100 cities that banned plastic bags. Governor Brown could easily say, okay, I hear the entire state, we're going to ban bags statewide. That was a grassroots initiative. And that's how it started. So to nip that in the bud, industry learned from California and said, okay, we're going to work from state to state and get state-level policymakers to pass these these moratoriums on 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 bag bans, on product bans. Now, uh, I think you're, we're still seeing cities say, you know, you you can't take this this power away from us. What are the most effective strategies that you are seeing um, taking place today, given that you're in the midst of this fight? I mean, get involved in the way your city, the way your community deals with waste. I think you, you, you find the organizations that are working on it. Surfrider, here in, here in California, there's Environment California, there's Heal the Bay. Across the country, there's Sierra Club, NRDC. Um, Surfriders are our closest partner, actually, and they do a lot of work at the municipal level, a level of grassroots organizing for these these product bans to keep our beaches and our environment clean. So I think getting active locally. I tell individuals, you know, for your consumer power, look at your grocery list and make that a zero waste grocery list. You're not just buying the product; you're buying the packaging also. So when Ann and I, my wife and I, buy you know food for our family and our daughter. We, we're looking at not just the product, but also the packaging. Okay, we want this peanut butter, but is it in a jar that's recyclable? Or can we go to a place and make our own peanut butter you know, at a co-op? So we try to zero waste our, our grocery list as much as possible. But I think you know, if this issue doesn't appeal to you, your heart directly, there are, like you said earlier, once you drop the veil on on these issues facing us, you see all the other things. You see how we get our energy, how we we transport people and goods. You see how we how we deal with water, water scarcity, food resilience, closing food deserts in cities. All these things, they are ripe for people to get involved. It's seeing where your passion is and looking at our cities and getting and just getting started. There's so many opportunities. And it's a mass movement and it's critical. There is no time to waste, you know, and, and this sense of urgency, not like, I don't, I don't want to sound like chicken little, but you know, you look around and I, I just turned 50 this summer. When I was a kid, there were just over 4 billion people on the planet. Now we're just under 8 billion and there's been no increase in the amount of, amount of land and sea. We have finite resources and we're, we're using those so quickly. 25 years ago, I was, in, I was a participant in a resource war. I went to Kuwait uh, uh, during the Gulf War in 1991. And, and everyone re- recognizes now that was a secure access to fossil fuels. We are exploiting our planet so quickly. We are losing species. We are polluting our planet, overpopulating it. We have to act now. And that's the... That's a dire side of things. Where I see, where I'm optimistic is that I see so much happening. There is such a consensus globally on we have got to shift and that we are shifting. You are seeing cities making these high level goals. The UN has these sustainable development goals. Eric Garcetti here in this city and in New York, cities across the country have their sustainability goals that are aligned with the UN SDG goals. You have all these organizations that are activating. Here in LA, you've got groups that are turning empty lots into community gardens. You've got ecological corridors. There's one one group um, um, here in Los Angeles wants to create a 100-mile stretch of, of green space, all connected bike paths, but an ecological 
corridor. So, I mean, getting involved is the first step, and it's got to happen now. You just came out with a new book, Junk Raft. Yes. And I want to give you a copy. It's right here. Thank you so much. I can't wait to read it. On the cover, you can see the, the picture of the raft. It's, uh, it's 15,000 plastic bottles with a Cessna 310 aircraft sitting on top. And no motor, no chase boat. We were dragged 60 miles offshore from Los Angeles. And it took us uh, a solid three months to drift to Hawaii on this raft of junk. And so this book is all about that adventure. But more, uh, more importantly, it's about the movement that's growing globally to address plastic pollution. And people can get in touch with you where? Go to fivegyres.org, and you can see our current campaign is on foam polystyrene, uh, trying to get rid of that in the single-use application, like cups and plates that are made from styrofoam, uh, transforming that to something more sustainable. Uh, go to fivegyres.org, see how to get involved, become an ambassador, ambassador to organization, um, learn about the issue, and just see where you can, you can join the movement. Thank you so much for taking the time, Marcus. I really enjoyed this conversation. My pleasure. Thanks, Kyle. That's our show, ladies and gentlemen. I recently added Junkraft to my book club, so you can go over to my website, kyle.surf slash book club, to check out that book as well as all of my other favorite reads. Also, by buying the books off of kyle.surf slash book club or by clicking the Amazon link there... I will get a small percentage of your purchase at no cost to you. So if you want to click that link and then bookmark it in your browser, um, it's a really easy way to support me. Um, doesn't cost you anything. So consider doing that. And also, um, I do a monthly email now. So once a month, I will send you the best books I've been reading, documentaries I've been watching, silly shit I've been laughing at. And just once a month, I will send it to your inbox. So you can sign up for the newsletter on my website. Reach out to Marcus if you like this podcast. Get involved with 5 Gyre. They're doing very important work. And get out in the water because as many problems as we have to solve in this lifetime it's still a beautiful world isn't it so sit back relax and enjoy this song by jack johnson called sitting waiting wishing and i'll see you next week
Lord knows that I'm not you And if I was I wouldn't be so cruel Cause waiting on love 